You are listening to Quelly TV Podcast, dedicated to the issue, stories, and culture of the global Black community. Our culture curated. Elementary Genocide is a docu-series. It's part one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. Part one deals with, it's called uh, the School to Prison Pipeline. And essentially what it deals with is how the government and the school system look at the reading scores of third and fourth graders and they're able to determine how many prisons they're going to build in the next 10 to 15 years. Because if you're not reading on grade level, by the time you're in the third or fourth grade, there's a 75% chance that you're going to end up in prison. And then essentially they sell these prison cells on the stock market. So that's the first one. Uh, Part two is called the Board of Education mm-hmm. versus the Board of Incarceration. And with this particular uh, documentary, we went back to the landmark ruling of 1954, so Brown versus the Board of Education. And we asked the proverbial question, has integration done us more harm than good? And we know actually that it done us more harm because back then we had 8,700 black teachers that got fired. From their jobs. So essentially, there was individuals that don't come from our culture and doesn't look like us and, and share our values, interests, and principles that was teaching us. And so, last and not least, is our last installment, which is called Elementary Genocide Three Academic Holocaust. And with this particular documentary, we wanted to bring it full circle and we wanted to deal with the political climate of what's going on in Black America today. <laughs> so we wanted to show that the assassination of your mind, the assassination of your critical thinking is no different than the assassination of Black and Brown bodies that we see being done by, you know, rogue police and the execution of unarmed Black men. Right. It's a bit, I know that was a lot. No, no, it's not a lot. I mean, it's a very, they're both, they're all meaty documentaries. When you started to do the first series, did you think it would be a three-part series? Or as you were doing your research, you started to find more information and you felt you needed to create more of this? Well, when I did the first one, initially it was just going to be one documentary. The people actually dictated that there needed to be more added on to that. But as you know, as as a filmmaker, you know, you constricted, you know, time constraint. So I could only fit so much in an hour and 20 minutes. And so when I went out and I traveled across the country, um, because this documentary was in great demand, and, you know, the audience, you know, during the Q&A, they would ask me, they would say, well, listen, I see that you focus a lot on black boys, but what about females? Mm-hmm. You know, and then I learned that there was an 800% increase in the incarceration of women in the last 30 years. I was just learning so much more and I was like, wow. And then I started doing more research and I said, you know what? Yeah, we're gonna have to do a part two. Mm-hmm. And then with a part two, you know, I wanted to end it on a on on a bang, you know, with the last one, mm-hmm. which was Elementary Genocide Part Three. And I still get requests now, you know, when you're gonna come out with four? When you're gonna come out with four? But unfortunately, there's not gonna be a, a four 
And the reason why is because my documentary is solution orientated, mm-hmm. you know, um, the last 10 to 15 minutes, sometimes 20 minutes, we list all the solutions mm-hmm. and what we have to do. And if you didn't get it in one, you didn't get it in two, and you didn't get it in three, you probably wasn't trying to get it, you know? So, yeah, we ended it on that. But that's not the end of um, my career as a documentarian. I, I got some other things up the sleeve. It's just different subject matter. Okay, okay. Well, we're really excited to see some of the future things. But you're so right. You know, the three films, they really are very meaty, and they give a lot of detail about the issue with the education system, especially when it comes to, to Black people. With the first one, as you mentioned, with the school to prison pipeline, we all know what those numbers are. Was there anything particular about the film that was probably even shocking for you when you were doing research? Yeah, from the beginning, everything was shocking, but it wasn't really, really shocking because everything started falling into place Mm -hmm. and it started making sense, you know, because actually I started the research from the project when I was incarcerated Mm -hmm. and I was in college and we had to write a paper, you know, a paper for a nonprofit and start a nonprofit organization. And, you know, so mine was on urban education and school to prison pipeline and prisoners voting. I was all over the place and I had to narrow it down. And when I was doing the research for uh, the paper, I found out that 85% of the inmates that was locked up where I was at in New York State, you know, I think it was 67 prisons or something like that back then. This was over 18 years ago, mind Mm -hmm. They came from seven neighborhoods. Mm. And so I began to look at these seven neighborhoods and I began to see that there was a disparity in education and healthcare. And then within the prison, you know, a lot of people, you know, adults, they was reading what they call ABE, Adult Basic Education Level. And, you know, when I came through those doors, I didn't have a GED. You know, I got my GED in 30 days. And then I went on to go to college. You know, I graduated in the top uh, 5% of my class 18 days before I got released. And, um, you know, it's just been a journey since then. And I always wanted to do a documentary that uh, resonated with something that I believed in and something that I actually did the research for, as opposed to, you know, taking someone else's research and bringing it to the public. Right. So how long did you serve? And then how long, but when you were incarcerated, did you start doing this research? And what was that process like to, I know it's a little, a, a lot of a question. Uh, when, what was that process like once you got out to actually create the documentary? Because for a lot of people, they a lot of people say oh, i want to be a documentary filmmaker and they don't know the first thing to get started and they haven't served time in prison what was that process like for you to answer the beginning of your question i wind up serving um six years i was sentenced to a four to eight and they wind up making me do six i thought i was going to get out after four and they said nah you you know and then they told me if i could have did the eight it was mandatory that they had to let me go after six but they would have made me do the whole eight. Like, they was not trying to let me go. You know how it is. And I was very young. Mm-hmm. You know, they, and what they do is they treat you like a child, but they'll punish you like an adult. So to answer your question, um, when I was in there, especially in college, I was always told that I was a prolific writer. So my thing was journalism. It wasn't really, you know, 
screenwriting or documentaries or none of that. But I did take a screenwriter's course and I wrote a short film while I was in there called The Sun Will Ride. And I had ambitions of, you know, one day producing that film. So when I get released, I started doing hip hop journalism. I started working for the Vibe, Source, XXL, and different things like that. And I did that for a number of years. It was very good, lucrative for me. But as you know, the traditional magazine world, when everything started going online, the money wasn't there no more. And it became more of gossip journalism. Didn't want to do that. So I dusted off my script that I had written while I was incarcerated and um, I was trying to sell it. And a lot of people was interested. The only problem was the money that they was trying to offer me, I couldn't get my clothes out of the cleaners with. It wasn't a substantial amount of money, but they wanted to, you know, I would have had the writing credit and different things like that. And it was with some, you know, relatively, I want to say decent uh, film companies. So what I decided to do was I decided to um, make it into a short film and enter it into film festival. I knew I had enough money to do that. So I casted it, got with a couple of other uh, brothers and sisters and we did it, we submitted it. And to make a long story short, we won several movie festivals. And one of the festivals was um, here in Atlanta. It was Atlanta Hip Hop Film Festival. And part of winning was that you can be apprenticed for, I think it was three days at Tyler Perry Studio. Mm -hmm. And at that time they was working on um, Daddy's Little Girl. So I went down there, uh, did the apprenticeship. And on the last day I was, I finagled it and turned from being an apprenticeship to actually working on the set. Wow. It was the last day and I was just like, this is my shot. So I worked with the Tyler Perry studio. I want to say I did about four films. Wow. Got the knowledge, the know-how, you know, and in between time and meantime, I started shooting videos, started shooting commercials. And then it was to the point of, Raheem, what's next, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so looked at that research paper that I did when I was incarcerated. And I said, you know what? I'm going to do a documentary like this. And I picked up the, the same camera that I had, the same computer, and I just actually went out there, shot it, edited it, and put it out. And as they say, the rest was history. Wow, what an amazing story. And the world opens up to you. Like, you did this one film, you were able to write for Vibe and all these really awesome publications. And then you get a chance to work with Tyler Perry. Like how how the universe works like that. Did you ever imagine when you were you were incarcerated that this would happen? That you would get a chance to work with such high ranking people to be able to create such great content and be able to really change people's thoughts about the education system and really just make a difference. I would say that I knew I was going to be doing that. I knew I was going to be doing something for now, mm -hmm. you know, because the way that I, I was training my mind, the way that I was positioning myself, and then I know me better than anybody else. And I know that, you know, failure is not an option for me. Right. You know, but one thing that I did know is that coming out, being a black man, that I knew I would never ever commit another crime, but I can't say that I wouldn't be accused of one. Cause just being a black man with a checkered past, if I'm walking down the street and it was a crime, you know, within <laughs> a five block radius, 
and happen to be a black male and I fit that description, they're going to take me to jail, whether I did it or not. This is the reality of being black in America. Right. But what I did know was that everybody respected me for my right. As a writer, no one cares about your background. You know, so that was my thing. Like, if I'm a writer, I'm my own boss. I work for my own self. And that is, I knew that was the position I was going to take. Mm -hmm. So after I got out and I did the two years on parole, you know, I had to work and different things like that. The day that I got off parole, I quit my job. Mm. And I was like, I'm never going to work for nobody else. And I, I haven't, you know, I haven't worked for nobody else since then. Right. I'm working for myself. So, you know, don't get me wrong. Me telling this story make it sound easy, but it, it, it wasn't easy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> don't think that the money, you know, came flushing in. There was a lot of broke days and, you know, but you get through it. You figure it out, mm -hmm. you know. How do you get through it, though? Because you meet so many people who, like, I'm an entrepreneur myself, have Quilly TV, and it gets really hard. I work for myself, and sometimes the money isn't flooding in, as, as you say. And then you meet so many people who think it is easy, right? They think, oh, well, you just create something and the money comes, but it's not like that. And with social media, I think sometimes we see the, the good times, we see the positive things, we see the awards, but you don't sometimes see the adversity that you, that you face when you're going through whatever it is, trying to grow your business or trying to get someone to be interviewed, whatever the case may be. What was that process like for you when you were in those dark places and how were you able to get past it? I think conditioning your mind, you know, once you know where you come from, you know, and then knowing what situations you're in, like nothing that happened, whether it was financially, anything like that, was worse than being in a prison cell. Mm. So anything that I ever went through, it wasn't, it wasn't worse than that. So, you know, feel sharp and still, anything that you go through, it's a life lesson. It's only gonna make you stronger. And then you mentally prepare yourself for things. And then, you know, sometimes you gotta call on the African spirit of the ancestors. Right. And, you know, I have a brother that transitioned and I always, you know, he was very smart. And I always say, what Joe would do in this situation? Mm -hmm. You know, Joe would, if he was here, he would figure it out. What would he tell me? So a lot of times you gotta, you gotta reach back and get the spirit of your ancestors in order to move forward. And like I said, it's never easy, but always, always, whenever I found myself in a bind, or things wasn't going right. You know, as an entrepreneur, a lot of times you're dealing with net 30. People want to pay you half up front, half when you finish. You know, some people you might have just gave the project to. Now you're waiting on your back end money. And it don't always come when they say it's going to come. Right. But I will always get a phone call for someone else. Yo, I need you to do this. Are you available today? And the universe just puts it there for you. Right, right. And then, and then another good thing too, right, is that I was able to build relationships with people. That was the most important thing for me to survive, mm -hmm. right? Like to this day, people will call me and they'll be like, yo, your number's still the same after 18 years? 
and I, and it was just like yo they when they tried to call my number they was like they didn't think it was gonna work and they was like yo you still yo tell me you still do music videos and i'll be like i shot your video 15 years ago yeah i need another one and you know and the thing about it that one person will refer me to other people to other people so i do very little marketing and promotion like i live off of referrals of other people now there was a time that you know you just starting out you had to take short money mm -hmm. you know you, you ain't got a big name yet people really don't want to pay you what, what your worth was but then i found this one client and the thing about it is when you find someone who has money and they value your talent and they refer you to other people nine times out of ten that group of people is going to be in that same income bracket because you know you know the saying if you hang around four broke individuals you're going to be the fifth right so money attracts power and money attracts other people with money so once i was able to get in that circle then the money started getting better you know i started getting to as the young kids say today i started getting to the bag right right secure the bag yes they say yep. that right <laughs> Yep, I had to secure the bag, and when it was secure, I never let it go. Hey, that's what you gotta so. do. As an entrepreneur, that's exactly what you have to do. I am really enjoying my conversation with Raheem Shabazz. He is the director of Elementary Genocide 1, 2, and 3. With the films, just talk a little bit more about the films before we go to our lightning round, just for quick questions. One of the interesting things for me was the part two about how important it is to have Black teachers teach Black students. Of course, there are, you see the viral videos, there's some white teachers who do a great job, not to say that white teachers can't teach Black kids, but there is something to be said about having another Black person who understands the history, the community in which they're teaching, actually teach their student. What was the most important, or what's the most important thing in that film that you want people to know about that part of the documentary? That's the most crucial part, right? <laughs> if you don't take nothing away from the documentary, you need to um, know that. For instance, with me, I started getting in trouble in the fourth grade, ironically, right? Mm -hmm. And it was a white teacher. Her name was Miss Foresca. And she brought me that book, uh, Man Child in the Promised Land by mm -hmm. Floyd McKay. When I tell you, I couldn't put that book down. And I don't know what it is. She just knew that that would be the book for me. And for me, James Baldwin, everybody else, like that really put me on my path to being an avid reader. So although I was a bad kid, I still liked to read. I was smart. And I was always ahead of everybody else. But she was a white teacher. You know, um, this is the thing, right? Do we wait? you know, for every 150 years to another John Brown come around, you know, and that's a real ally to black people. No, we can't do that. And statistically, it has been proven that when a child is taught by someone that looks like them, that they have a higher academic success. Mm -hmm. And we know that, you know, culturally, that there's a difference in our history. There's a difference in our language and our linguistic, the way that we convey words, mm -hmm. you know? We are uh, people that, you know, sometimes we speak in rhythm and movement. And sometimes to 
outside people that's intimidating. Right. So this is where you see a lot of times you might have a child being deferred to the principal office or he's being written up or she's being suspended for willful defiance. You know, and that may simply be a young sister rolling her eyes and sucking her teeth. That's willful defiant. I asked you to do something and you roll your eyes and you suck your teeth, you know, and they may have the intentions of doing what they, they wanted them to do, but this is how kids express themselves. And now you've had them, you know, adjudicated a juvenile delinquent because they got suspended from school. And we know that there's a disparity in suspension. Mm -hmm. And those that are suspended are three more times likely to get in trouble. And when they get in trouble, they go to jail. And nine times out of 10, that person is black or brown. Right. So when we know these numbers, we have to be very, very careful, you know, who we allow to educate our kids. You know, Malcolm X said it best that we are the only race of people to allow open enemy and other people to actually educate us. You don't see it in no other ethnic community. And what's sad about it is that people will say that it's racist and that it's wrong that anybody should be able to teach anybody in it. We shouldn't look at our race. I think our problem is that we vocalize it. Other people don't even speak about it. They just do it. You know, they just do it. And it's, it's very unfortunate. But what I will tell you is this. I have traveled all around the country. I have did over 300 screenings with all the documentaries combined and lectures. And a lot of times I was in all white spaces where <laughs> there was a handful of blacks in the room. And the white audience never have a problem with that. And I always get the questions where people say, well, I don't think, you know, that is right. And, you know, I agree with everything else, but I don't agree. And it's just ironic that our own people won't agree with that. But white people agree with it. Well, it is interesting. So you have a screening with mostly white audience and you mentioned about having black kids being taught by black teachers. Like, yeah, we get it. But then for black people, like, wait a minute, that's not right. That's very interesting. Yeah. And it happened several different times. You know, um, one time in particular, it was from a individual, a female that, that was a black teacher. And, um, you know, during the Q&A, I said, anybody got any questions? And she, she really challenged me on it. And, um, you know, I had to, I, I handled her with kid gloves, but I had to shut her down. Right, right, right. Well, it's good you didn't handle her with kid gloves. <laughs> Appreciate that. So we're on that lightning round. There are four questions. I call it the Quilly round. You know, Quilly means truth. So my first mm -hmm. question is, what film, black film, has impacted your life the most and why? Hmm, I got a few. Um, one that I really do like is the uh, Miseducation of Sonny Carson. Okay. And uh, the spook who sat by the door. And why those films? Well, with the Sonny Carson film, it was it was almost like a book that I read, you know. And I didn't. And ironically, I didn't read the book until after I seen the film. Mm -hmm. But it was just, I guess, during the time that I viewed it, the climate that I was in, I was like, wow, this was based on someone's life. You know what I mean? So, I, you know, that, that kind of gravitated towards me. And the spook who sat by the door, and, and it's ironic that I said both of these movies, because both of them, they're based on books. 
that book was actually banned um, in the Department of Corrections for for several years. Really? By the time I went, I why? Was there, Do you know why? Because it's talking about um, you know blacks being revolutionaries and going against the government and sticking it to the man. That's how they say it back then. Yeah, but still, that's crazy for it to be banned. But I get it. Yeah. You know, they ban everything except the Bible. That's how they did it. So when I was incarcerated, it wasn't banned, but years before that, it was. So that made me want to read the book even more. Now, with that one, I read the book first. So then when I seen the film, I was like, wow. And then I started doing the history of the film. And I think it had a very, very short theater run. And they took it out of the theaters. And years later, I think someone found the old reel of it in an attic. And then they re-released it. And it caught on like wildfire. But that film was never to be seen again. They immediately shut it down. Took it out of the theaters. Because, you know, back then, we didn't have no theaters. Right. And um, they didn't even want to um, spark the thought of Blacks being you know, self-sufficient, smart enough to infiltrate and go amongst their ranks and get the knowledge of guerrilla warfare or how things is done and bring it back to the community and train the brothers and sisters. So, yeah, those were the two films. Awesome. And I think I read that as far as the spook, I think that was a, a company that's, that's supposed to be bringing it back again and making it, like, refurbishing it or, or making the quality better. I think. I think I read that maybe last time. Yeah. Sometimes I think some things are, are better left alone. You know, just like when they did the remaster or reboot of Roots. Mm-hmm. I'm like, come on. You just need to leave that in its most purest form. You know, some things you can't, you know, dilute and tamper with. Right, right. Because there's nothing wrong with the film. That's one of those films that it's a timeless piece. A hundred years from now, people can sit down and still listen to it. I mean, view it. You don't have to do nothing to it. It'll never be outdated. It's a classic film. And and I think when you have to look at people with a side eye that want to, you know, remake a film and, and recast it with other people in it because they see the value of it. Mm-hmm. But more than that, they see that uh, monetarily, it probably can do real good. And it's about money. Right, it right. Even about the message. Yeah, I think with this one, they just wanted to remaster it just so like the quality since it was made in the 70s. I think they wanted to just remaster it so it Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. To bring it up to like eight. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think that's what they want to do. They're going to remake the film, like the Roots. But the Roots, I think, for that one, they want a new generation of black people to to watch the film. I think that's probably what they were trying to do. The Roots, I'm assuming. So. And and that and you know that didn't have no real effect, you know, um, when they did the reboot because I remember I think it was '76. I'm probably telling my age now, <laughs> but I was young and I remember the first uh, uh, airing of The Roots. You know, that was a time like no other. You know, everybody was glued to the TV set and that was the talk for the next couple of months. And I was young and I remember that. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I can tell you right now, as a young person, I remember the, those times, I think it might have been 76, 78, something like mm-hmm. that. Y'all talk about black on black crime. Black on white crime was at an all-time high after the end of the roots. We was very mad about that movie. 
because that was the first time, you know, people really got to see what, you know, slavery was really like. Right, right. Yeah, I wasn't alive quite yet when the original one came out, but growing up every year, like the same time every year, they would show the, show the movie on television. I would watch it as a kid. So I, it did definitely have an impact on me because it was something I, I didn't learn in school. Typically in when you're in school, the, the history of black people, if they do talk about history, is mostly slavery, but it's like a paragraph mm-hmm. or two. It's not, it doesn't go into depth like Roots did. So it was something that was impactful for me as well. So what was the last movie that you saw, actually? The last movie that I saw, ooh, um, you know what? I read so much. I write so much. I don't even remember the names and stuff. Um, <laughs> the one you remember, the last movie you saw that you remembered. Okay. The one with the singer, is it uh, Kiki Palmer, right? Oh, um, is it, uh, a, the, what's it called? Is the Pimp movie? Is it called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Lee, Lee Daniels Yeah, directed yeah. It's, I think it was yeah. called The Pimp yeah. or something. Is that? Yeah, I seen that. How was that? Then, oh, it was good. It was good. Okay. It was good. It was good. And then The Hate That You Give. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those were the last two. Okay. And I'd be so busy, right? You know, but every now and then I gotta shut it down. I gotta, you know, ground myself and watch a movie because a lot of times, you know, you do that and it regenerates your uh, your creative juices. Exactly, I feel you. I don't watch it much either. I watch Quilly films because you know we have to put them on the platform. I have to watch them to make sure they're in mission and keeping with our mission. So I don't get a chance to watch as much TV either, but definitely or or films. But I, I try when I have some free time. Definitely try to try to watch it. So this is my last question. As you know, Quilly means truth in Swahili. So as a director, how do you speak truth to power in your filmmaking? And what's your authentic voice? Your truth voice when it comes to filmmaking. Well, with my films, when you see the cover, you know it's unapologetically black. Right. You know, just that alone. Um, wherever I go, I represent that. And, and it's kind of different for me than a lot of other people because been in spaces like this since I was 13, being conscious and knowing. So this is almost like a way of life for me. So there's never a moment where I'm not who I say I am, because mm-hmm. I've been like this for so long. You know, they have a saying that if you want to see if someone stands in their truth and really pro-black, you know, see if they the same person around white people. Bring them around your white friends or, or, or see them act in those spaces. I, I, I'm the same person, mm-hmm. no matter where, where I go. Even with a new project that I'm working on, I have two of them. With one of them, it's not so much, it's for a worldwide audience, but you can see where I put the truth from a black perspective in there. You know, you're going to catch it, but it's not overly saturated with that. Right. Sometimes you have to, you know, give them the medicine little by little. But there's always going to be truth in what, whatever I do. You know, you all, I'm going to always represent for me and represent for my people foremost. And um, that comes back, like I said, I, I, I was an avid reader. And um, when I read the opinions of Marcus Garvey, you know, one of the things that he said was, he said, intelligence rules the world and ignorance carries the burden. And as a young individual, I never wanted to be a burden for my family, 
for my people, and most of all, for my race. So I'm going to always stand and walk in that truth. That's just me. Wow, what a great way to end this conversation. Thank you so much, Raheem. You can watch all three of Elementary Genocide on Quilly TV, and you can search for Elementary Genocide. Thanks so much for this conversation. It was really great talking to you. I learned so much about your history and your motivation for creating these films. I really appreciate the time. All right, and thank you for allowing me the opportunity to have my film stream on your platforms. And remember you was asking me how, you know, an individual make it as an entrepreneur in hard times? Yes. Well, a couple of months ago, I fell back on hard times, you know. It it wasn't really hard times. It's just when you have a lot of money all over the place. Mm and the money's not coming in as fast as you want, and you went waiting on that one big check to pay it all off. Right. You know, and that check was late. That quality TV streaming money came right on time. So I want to thank you. Thank you. Let me just feel better. I wish we could do more. We're just trying to grow our subscriber base, so I I appreciate that, because it gets hard out here sometimes, so I appreciate that. It was more more than what I expected. I was like, oh, okay. I need to make two more movies to put up there. <laughs> I appreciate that, sister. Thank you. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. All right. You too. All right. Peace. Peace.